deceived me. <laughs> deceived me. The thinking that you were a traitor. Rise, my friend. Monsieur Bonacieux, what am I to say? I find that our suspicions about you were entirely unjust. That cardinal has taken my hand and called me friend. Oh, we must make you better amends than that. Take these hundred pistoles and forgive me. I forgive your eminence. You cannot mean that. I mean, what am I? I, I am nothing. A better, I'm, 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 I'm less, less than nothing. Friend, you are generous. Well then, adieu. Oh, better still, au revoir. For I hope that you will come to visit me again so that we can talk together and tell our next meeting. Oh, did you hear that? We're going to talk together. Isn't that lovely? Oh, did you hear that, fellow? Uh, I think I've done all that can be done with him. I've set him to spy upon his wife. He didn't think I was frightening him, did he? I see what you did there. That's very good. Eh? <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so, listen, you're listening to to Goon Pod, and uh, uh, last time my guests were on, uh, we were talking about a film which um, included uh, a bit with Spike Milligan with a with a big long white beard in the Bastille in 17th century France, and we figured why not continue that theme. So, um, my guests have come back to talk about uh, another film with Spike Milligan in 17th century France. Uh, I'd like to introduce Christopher Webb and Robert Johnson. Hello, chaps. Hello. What ho? Hello. Hey. Uh, Thank you for having us back. Not a, but my pleasure. You are the um, the, the gentleman behind the uh, ever-popular Still Winnie Good podcast. <laughs> well, you're half right. <laughs> Silent N at the beginning of that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, Tyler, it's always lovely to hear your sweetly mirthless voice again. <laughs> oh, you bastard! <laughs> you, you went there. God, oh my, yeah, I got a, I got a. Um, if people don't understand. People won't understand that reference. But um, I got a very nice. The show, the podcast, got a very nice uh, review on uh, Apple Podcasts. It's not iTunes anymore, is it? Um. And I was, I was referred to as sweetly mirthless or something like that, and I just thought, mm. damning with faint praise, that isn't it? Emphasis on sweet, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But they also said that uh, you clearly have contacts, which um, yeah. If if they knew the contacts that you're speaking to tonight, two middle-aged men sitting in a garage in the middle of the night, <laughs> in they'd probably take that back yeah. in New Zealand. Um, in New Zealand, I do yeah. have contacts. I'm wearing them now. Um, yeah. hey. <laughs> but you know what? I um I just listened to your Lady Killers episode a few days ago, and um, you had quite a few chortles in that. Oh yeah, there was quite a bit of mirth in that. Yeah, there you go. It's not it's not completely humorless. This podcast, you know. No. 
Um, <laughs> There's one for the poster. <laughs> it's not completely human. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so last time you were on, we were talking about Mel Brooks' uh, History of the World, part one, mm. which, mm-hmm. um, which went down a storm, very enjoyable. And during the course of that conversation, I don't know how it came up, but we, we, the Three Musketeers came up in conversation, the 1973 film. And we we said, hey, you know, that's something to squirrel squirrel away for the future. Um, I think we may even even have said that we'd do both the three and the four musketeers. But God, I don't think either of us. I think we agreed to do a crossover. You were going to do the four musketeers for our podcast. Ah, okay, cool. Okay, well, that's something for maybe next year or something. We we need to as well because I'm really uh, keen to keen to watch the follow up after watching this. About it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is only half a film, of course, fam- yes. famously. Well, that's the thing because I haven't. I, I've seen both. I mean, obviously, I've seen. I've watched rewatched the Three Musketeers for this, but I haven't seen the Four Musketeers since I was a kid. Um, mm. So I'm I'm intrigued as to because obviously, as as we'll go into the 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 Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers were well, it was it was all filmed together, wasn't it? And then split into two. Yeah, essentially, mm. it was supposed to be one three hour epic. Yeah, with an intermission. Yeah. Mm. But look, today we're focusing on the Three Musketeers by virtue of the fact, as I alluded to before, that it does feature um, Spike Milligan um, in a role in a bigger role than I actually thought. In the sense that he's in the film quite a bit, really, isn't he? Is he? Actually, yeah, and, it, and he actually does have some agency in yeah. it as well. He he does something rather than turn well, up and be Spike Milligan. He he does play a sort of vital role. He in it. He's actually a character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I was surprised to see. He—he, they've brought him in clearly to be himself. Mm. He's—he's he's not sort of acting as a character. He's coming mm. to be Spike. Yeah. But it does actually have some sort of significance yeah. on the rest. Of he it. had to learn lines and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He had to act. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we'll come to him in a bit. So yes, yeah, we're talking about the the nineteen seventy three Three Musketeers directed by Richard Lester, and um, chaps, I want to kick off by asking you a little bit of a, a poser here. Okay. What do these right. what do these have in common? All right. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, the yellow I already t- know the answer to this. Oh do you? <laughs> <laughs> well pretend you don't. <laughs> I'd have a guess as well, yeah. Okay. Lord of the okay. Rings, the yellow teddy bears, up against it, a talent for loving, and the three musketeers. What do they have in common? Well, I'm I'm not sure about those middle two. But I, I'm assuming it's going to be something to do with the Beatles were going to star in, what? intended to star in. I was going to go for something to do with Christopher Lee and teaching people how to fence. Or te- Christopher Lee teaching people as they went along, because he taught a lot of people about talking during Lord of the Rings. Okay. And he taught Oliver Reed how to fence. Ah, well. In a previous film. Yeah, he did. Well, um, Chris, uh, uh, sorry, Robert, you, you win the bun. Because um, <laughs> okay. yes, they, they were all mute, uh, mooted as film projects for the Beatles at one time or another. Mm. Okay, the Yellow Teddy Bears. I mean, Jesus, you know, it, yeah, it, never heard of that one. Um, up against it was a um, a, a proposed Joe Orton porno. Uh, it was a homoerotic. <laughs> it was homoerotic. Oh, uh, okay. script, nice. yep. which um, Brian Epstein vetoed. <laughs> Um, a Talent for Loving was actually, despite the name, was going to be like a cowboy film with the Beatles. Um, <laughs> okay, so the Beatles, you know, the Beatles had made one 
truly great film and one pretty good film. So A Hard Day's Night and Help, okay, which were both mm. directed by Richard Lester. And Lester had worked with Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers on the early Fred shows on TV and the running Jumping and Standing Still film. And that was why he was deemed the ideal director to direct The Beatles. Okay, so there's that connection. Yeah. Um, now, actually, if The Beatles had made The Three Musketeers, yeah. who would have played what role, do you reckon? Are you um, reading my yeah. notes? Because I've written this down as well. Yeah. Lennon would be Ethos. I think George would be D'Artagnan. Right. Oh, I was going to go Paul for D'Artagnan. Oh, really? No, I was going to go Ringo. Ringo for D'Artagnan. Oh wow! R- oh, Ringo's Porthos. Ringo's clearly Porthos. I had Ringo as Athos. <laughs> well, didn't I? Did, what? I put Ringo for because <laughs> it is because it is George as Aramis because he's sort of the monastic priestly sort of one. But he's the young, very pretty. He's oh, the young well, one. He's not. A, he's not like a protagonist, though, is he? He's not like a main character, is he, George? Mm, I suppose. No, the, re- no, the reason I put Ringo for D'Artagnan is it, it's generally considered that of the four, Ringo was the best actor. Yep. And in this film, okay. D'Artagnan's got the most to do, isn't he? Well, D'Artagnan's sort of the hero, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. But it, couldn't be, it couldn't be Ringo as D'Artagnan because he's not even the best fencer in the Musketeers. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, D'Artagnan would be Pete Best. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Nickel. Um, Victor yeah. Spinetti, because Victor Spinetti, it was written in in in, uh, in blood that Victor Spinetti must always appear in a Beatles film. So he'd have Absolutely. been he'd have been Cardinal Richelieu, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. George Martin would have been. He'd have in his Texas Pete voice, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I definitely see Lennon as sort of the brooding, ethos type character. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I think we're all agreed. Well, I'm agreed, and you're agreed, Rob. Lennon is Athos. Yeah. 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 Um, we're just going to argue for an hour now, aren't we? About this, uh, this is going to yeah, be the whole, the whole the whole episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tyler, I don't mean to interrupt, but just um, I'm not sure if you can hear a whole lot of fireworks in the background. <laughs> this is going to make oh, no. the recording really, really great. Uh, well, but it is, of course, Guy Fox night. Yes, it's November the 5th, it's yes. the evening of November the 5th, and a lot of my neighbours seem to be setting off fireworks in their gardens. Yeah. So apologies for that in advance. <laughs> no, I can't hear a thing. Oh, um, that's good. But, uh, you will. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I will. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so, okay, so Richard Lester, he did those Beatles films, and he, he directed John Lennon in How I Won the War. Mm. Um, at the end of the 60s, he directed... Uh, a big screen version of Spike's Bed Sitting Room. Bed Sitting Room, yeah. Yeah, which was um, which is a pretty good film, um, but it wasn't particularly <laughs> successful. And then soon after that, um, he was he was going to begin work on a motion picture adaptation of Flashman, um, which yes. is the George Macdonald Fraser novel, which it is brilliant. Was. I mean, have you read any of the Breakfast. Flashman books? Mm. I have, yes, and they are delightful. They are They're great. tremendous, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and he, of and course, wrote the screenplay for this. That's right, because yeah. if they couldn't get financing for Flashman at the yeah. time, it wasn't as a, a guaranteed winner as, as The Three Musketeers, but I think a couple of years later... They made a terrible Flashman film with Malcolm McDowell. It's not they? strong. No, yeah. no, it's not. But the, it, and Apparently yeah. Lister wanted Malcolm McDowell for 
D'Artagnan and mm. us. Mm. Which I could see that. Absolutely, I could see that. If you said to me, okay, I mean, I, I think Michael York is fine, but I could equally see Malcolm McDowell in that role. I, I just, I see Malcolm McDowell as a evil person for some. I mean, I just. It would have been a different D'Artagnan. It would have been a much yeah. darker D'Artagnan, well, dark Tanyan, if you will. Yeah. But you're thinking of him maybe from his, you know, from uh, um, Clockwork Orange. I'm thinking of him from yeah. um, Oh Lucky, Oh Lucky Man. He plays a very sort of everyman yes. character in Oh Lucky yep. Man, kind of um, fresh faced and slightly naive. So I'm um, yep. I'm thinking of him like that. But yeah, so the Flashman film, the that that Lester was working on or hoping to get off the ground, it was um, it was going to feature or star John Alderton who at that time was famous on TV as... Um, oh, Please, sir. Yeah, Mr. Hedges, was it? From Please, sir? Um, Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think... I can't remember. Today. Please, right, Please, sir. And I know, Rob, you're younger than me, but I don't think it was ever on TV in New Zealand. It certainly wasn't when I... You know, it wasn't repeated. I've never heard of it. No, really? No. A sitcom set in a classroom where the pupils were clearly... <laughs> Not school age. 30. Yeah, oh, easily. Oh, so, yeah. Easily. Sounds like head of the class. Oh, God. <laughs> Some of them were older than John Alderson. <laughs> it was like Greece. Yeah. <laughs> right, Duffy. Do you know how to work one of these things? Oh, boy! Fancy trust an expensive piece of equipment to a little child. <laughs> it's a load of old rubbish that should have been scrapped years ago. That's why I'm trusting it to a little child, Duffy. Hurtful, Chief. <laughs> Hurtful. Here, Chief, is that true we got a student teacher coming today, then? Yes, big ears. It is. Yeah. Tart, is it? <laughs> a young lady, Abbott, I believe so. They're all tarts to me. Pardon? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, there's no chance of this being a love film, is there? Uh, not unless Greek architecture gets you going, no show. <laughs> I've only seen it since I've been in the UK, but it, I can't. Yeah. yeah, it was it was one of those students going through menopause and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is yet another one of those British sitcoms that had the uh, not so great film adaptation containing the same uh, cast, where they all go on holiday and it all goes wrong. Yeah, with like a, a scene with boobs in it. Um, it was they were still in school, so okay. probably. <laughs> yeah, but they're played by 42 year olds yeah so. <laughs> well, to give you an idea of how old the pupils are one of them was played by um, Peter Denyer who plays Ralph Dring in Dear John yes okay. the one with the mobile discotheque that's how old they were and yeah. that was only like 10 years later and, 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 and there was a spin-off series as well called The Fen Street Gang yes that's right but yeah so John Olsen was obviously he was that would, I mean it, it, the Flashman film if, if, if it had been made it could have, it really could have, you know, uh, Alderton's career could have skyrocketed off the back of that. But sadly, sadly not. But I think, yeah, it came down to money, pretty much, because they were going to need like um, like thousands of extras to represent the British Army in Kabul, for example. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. uh, it's not something that you could have filmed in real. <laughs> you know, that have had to. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on up the Kyber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and and Lester, you know, around this point, Lester was, wasn't was able to, you know, he couldn't make anything because he was attempting to make a film called Send Him Victorious, 
which was um, based on a novel by uh, later Foreign Secretary Douglas Hurd. Oh wow! Yeah, um, which I'd never heard of, but it was it was a thriller, and it was um, it was gonna it would have starred Ralph Richardson. It was a and it was about get this right a right wing takeover of the UK. Wow. <laughs> That would never happen. No, I can't imagine that. <laughs> but yeah, United Artists didn't stump up the cash for that. So anyway, so he wasn't having a great time. He was offered a clockwork orange, but didn't want wow. didn't want to do it because of the sex and violence. But he'd eaten that day. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a chocolate orange. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So so he was making he was making TV commercials basically around this time early seventies, and then he was approached by the I'm not sure how you pronounce it is it Selkind or Selkind brothers I say Selkind yeah I say Selkind but oh, okay. you say Selkind mm. let's call the whole thing off <laughs> uh, they wanted to produce this big film adaptation of the Three Musketeers and. Yeah. Uh, they they pitched it right as a big sexy film with big sexy stars. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. But he interpreted it as he wanted it to be like an irreverent take on a classic adventure yarn, mm. um, and I think kind of the thinking, the reason that Lester was approached was because he had previously proven himself adept at directing, you know, a quartet of amusing, unpredictable characters with the Beatles. So they thought, you know, mm. perhaps he could be the, the ideal man for this. And yeah, he went and he obviously he made that connection with George MacDonald Fraser previously. So he asked him to write the screenplay and do a flashman on it. And yeah, I think the film, it, it sticks quite closely to the novel. Um, I mean, the flashman books, how would, you des- how would you describe the flashman books? The sort of historic, historical, humorous, bawdy, yeah, bawdy most definitely, but they are—they are, as far as I can tell, they are historically factual, but with a, a fictional character at the helm and plenty of source. Heaving bosoms, pretty much what they are. Yeah, he was the the school bully from Tom, from Tom Brown's school yeah. days, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, he was a rogue, and I think if I remember correctly, and he his whole career is based on people thinking that he's more heroic and honourable than he actually is. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's um, a cad. Absolutely. He's a kid. Yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the books feature him wanting to have sex with his wife, Elspeth. Um, <laughs> but she's always away having sex with other men. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, and yeah, the film was going to be about four hours long. And then they decided to split it in half. And they didn't tell the, didn't tell the actors. Oh, wow! Until the premiere, they yeah. found out that the film they were going to see was just going to be the first half of it. Yeah, apparently some of them didn't even know up to that point. No, they didn't. None of I think some of the crew yeah. didn't know, um, but the cast certainly didn't know. And Count Heston ruefully had said, "Hmm, two for the price of one." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Charlton Millionaire Heston was fine with it, yeah. but everyone else not so happy. Well, yeah, because they didn't get they didn't get paid. God. They got paid for one film, basically, didn't they? Yeah, yep. It's awful. And and then um, thereafter, the Screen Actors Guild have inserted the the Selkind Selkind clause. Yeah. 
Not to be confused with the, the other Salkine Claus, the Santa Claus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Salkine Claus starring Tim Allen. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, they made, the Santa, they made Santa Claus the movie, the Salkines. So that was their Salkine Claus. Yeah. yeah, we're making Santa Claus, here's the Salkine Claus. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they sort of learnt their lesson by the time they came to producing Superman, mm. um, because they did film... Quite famously, Superman one and Superman two back to back, um, and clearly told the actors this time, and then brought in Richard Lester to finish it off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. there's some similarities, definitely. Well, so I... the inverse of this is when you have movies that are planned to be one thing. I'm thinking of that final two <laughs> Harry Potter films that was only going to be one film, and only warranted one film, mm. and then they split that into. That must have been a great. Payday for Daniel Radcliffe and co. They were just like, oh, all right. Yeah. We paid again. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which again is fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Because the producers are getting two paydays. Why shouldn't they? Exactly. And, yep. and of course, at the end of this film, Three Musketeers, you get a trailer, don't you? For, for the Four oh. Musketeers. Which... And I was chomping at the bit to watch the Four Musketeers. So we've got to, we've got to plan this. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, it made me think of, it brought to mind, um, uh, and I couldn't think of any other films that have done this, but it brought to mind Back to the Future 2. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they filmed... Yeah, I was, I was thrilled to bits when I went to see Back to the Future 2 at the cinema, and, and straight afterwards, it was yeah. like, here's what's coming next. It was, yeah. it was great. It was really good. Mm. I, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed Back to the Future 2 more than Back to the Future. And <clears throat> it's only recently that I've seen Back to the Future 3. Which is not bad. My least favourite. Yeah. It's... Oh, I like it. I like it very much. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I think it's. I think it goes back to the formula of the first one, which is just a linear story. It was I find the second one, it's a bit of a mess. I and love it, the second one. The second one sort of ties itself up in its own mm. mythology and yeah. it breaks its own rules occasionally, which I'm not a fan of. I don't know. They, they just, say the yeah. thing about timelines, and then they actually break the rule by them being there in the future anyway, where they shouldn't be because they've yeah. travelled there and stuff like that. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I would say I'm reading too much into it, but they created these rules. I think the future, anyway. the future is 2015, isn't it? If I'm right. Mm. Yeah. And where they've got like, um, where's my flying skateboard? Yeah, mm. hoverboard things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wearing two ties to work. <laughs> <laughs> They're fax machines. <laughs> it's the future fax machine. Yeah. Yeah. Where are my 3D holographic trailers? Yeah. <laughs> you're prompt, sir. Even though you're not running. <sighs> but you did hurt my shoulder. I trust it will not inconvenience you, sir. If you wish to postpone our meeting. By no means. I fight just as well with my left hand. If you find this place as you at the disadvantage, I do apologize. You're very courteous, sir. I was going to add, uh, about your wound. I have an ointment of my mother's. You might be soothing. Hmm? You overwhelm me, young man. I'm going to give up, Julie. Ah, oh, here come my seconds. Are you fighting this, uh, fellow? But I'm meeting him myself. But not till one o'clock, sir. Oh, no, no, no. I'm to fight him this afternoon. Uh, at two o'clock, sir. How long have you been in Paris? Since 8 o'clock this morning. You waste little time, sir. My father recommended that I fight duels. <laughs> well, let us hope you can do him some credit. Hmm? 
Um, so this film, I've not asked you guys, I should have asked this at the outset, what's your history with it? Well, I first saw this and sort of heard of it, I think I was about 11, so it would have been 1992, maybe 1993, and they played the Three Musketeers sort of on one weekend and then the Four Musketeers the following weekend. And I, I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't, I think a lot of the humour sort of passed me by. I don't think I picked up a lot of the dialogue. Yeah. And I was a little bit underwhelmed with Michael York. Actually, it would have been 1993 because I think I'd already seen the um, the Brat Pack oh, version. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I was quite sort of hyped up on that one, you know. I was, I love the, the Sting, Brian Adams. Who was the third guy? Who was the third guy? Uh, Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart, oh, yeah. Love, you know. You loved that, did the you? Obligatory, um, uh, you loved the obligatory... You loved that. The obligatory cheat. Well, it was sort of coming off the, the, the Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves kind of uh. high. Um, and that was a much simpler story. Do they follow the same story? No. It's not the Queen's Diamonds? No, they they sort of... <laughs> That plot is basically the the Musketeers have been disbanded um, by the Cardinal, who's played by Tim Curry. Okay, trumpeting all the yep. scenery that you, you, you'd imagine. <laughs> and Kiefer Sutherland's Athos, Charlie Sheen's Aramis, and Oliver Platt as Porthos, and Chris O'Donnell, that sort of charisma-free zone, <laughs> you know, is D'Artagnan. And then they go straight into that, into the kind of Athos Milady history yeah and it's very simple very basic sort of plot but um yeah so i quite enjoyed this i i i enjoyed the sword play i remember enjoying the, the sword play and then i remember really liking the four musketeers although being quite disturbed by the four musketeers because it takes quite a dark turn and then hadn't really seen it since then okay what about you chris um i think I saw this probably in the late 70s when it was on TV. So I would have been quite young when I saw it, probably like about eight or nine years old. And it, it must have been on TV. It's one of, probably one of those films that was on ITV on a regular basis because I do remember seeing it a few times on TV. But since then, not at all. Mm. So the last time I saw it was probably the early 80s. Right. And so very much like you, Rob, I, I'd completely forgotten that there was any kind of humour or slapstick mm. in it. I think because I'd seen different versions of the Musketeers after that, particularly the one with the dogs. It's probably the main one that I've seen. And um, in that, they're not as drunken and crap as they are. So it it was a bit of a surprise watching this because I was really, really unprepared for the the jokes, the humour, the slapstick. I was Mm. expecting a straight Musketeer film. So it was a little bit jarring the first time I watched it this time round. It was really interesting. Yeah, because I'm pretty much the same. I hadn't seen this since the 80s probably and i've seen versions i mean the, the the version that i've seen the most is i think it's um what's it called um M- uh, mickey's three musketeers the mickey mouse oh, God. <laughs> because i've got children um um i read i actually i've never read the book but i've read um man in the no um count of monte cristo a couple of years ago okay oh yeah um so, but I, I was, you know, I was aware of the Three Musketeers story, I suppose. But they pop up in um, the terrible version of Man in the Iron Mask with Leonardo DiCaprio as 
Are, are they in the, the novel of the Money Man and they, Rust? I think they, they are. are, aren't they? So, so the novels are The Three Musketeers, then there's 20 Years Later. Yes. And then there's, it's not called The Man in the Iron Mask, it's called like The Vicomte de something. And then there's basically a Man in the Iron Mask section mm. in that. Um, and they're all old by then. Yeah, they all die basically in that one. And okay. sort of Aramis and Porthos sort of they, they, they go fall bad. out, don't they? Yeah, really? yeah. they sort of do a bit of a heel turn. Um, yeah, right. but they were just yeah, sounds a bit <clears throat> depressing. But the 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 man in the Iron Mask with Leonardo DiCaprio, it's got some pretty inspired casting. It's like John Malkovich is the aging Athos. Yeah, Jeremy Irons is Aramis. Mm-hmm. Gabriel Byrne is D'Artagnan. And God, is it Gerard Depardieu? Yeah, Gerard Depardieu is Porthos, a Frenchman playing yeah, a musketeer. I know, I know. Shut <laughs> um, But yeah, it's not a very good film. I haven't seen it. I haven't had the. Video. I have seen the the recent. Well, when I say recent, the the Kevin Reynolds version of uh, Count of Monte Cristo. That's good. With Guy Pearce and yeah, Jesus and Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's very good, actually. Jesus. I really enjoy that. Yeah, uh, Jim 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 Caviezel. Oh, isn't isn't he like um, one of those QAnon people? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, he'll probably be president of the United States in the next (laughs) sometime (laughs) in the next fifteen years. (laughs) So you know when we watched History of the World, the 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 French, the the it's good to be king sequence. Clearly, Mel Brooks was inspired by this film, wasn't he? Surely, the chess scene definitely. Yeah. And Spike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because this was quite successful, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. Uh, Multi-BAFTA nominated, wasn't it? Yes, yes yeah. it was, yeah. I think, was there I think Raquel Welsh won a Golden Globe. Yeah, she, Raquel Welsh won a Golden Globe. This one, quite controversially, I think it, it wasn't even nominated for an Oscar for costume design. Mm. Whereas The Four Musketeers, which is the same film, yeah. won an Oscar for best costume design. <laughs> okay. Which is quite right. strange. Because this one, the, the costumes and the, the set designs, I think, are phenomenal. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. amazing. I told you that as we're, as we're recording, I am I have the film on in the background. Just, you know, just to get me in the spirit, if you like. And, and we are literally... In the zone. We are literally at the bit where Raquel Welch has stuck her bosoms... Through oh, the window yes. of the sedan chair in which Frank- Captain Peacock. Yes, Captain Peacock. It's <laughs> just about to have a little fondle and then she. It's <laughs> that sort of humour that I was a little bit bloody hell. What's going on here then? Would have been better if it was John Inman. He sort of warms his hands. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. and then, and then um, oh, Roy Kinnear's just got a kick up the ass. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> He's a trooper in this, isn't he? Oh, can we talk about Roy Kinnear? Can we talk about? Yes, yeah. we have to. Yeah, because the because because his history with the Three Musketeers is doesn't end well, does it? No, tragically even. Mm. <coughs> now, well, amazing, survived this one. Yeah, there is a scene. Yeah, and it is him. Yeah, because <laughs> they couldn't afford a stunt. They, they, they couldn't get a stunt on his size. Yeah. so he had to do his own stunts. <laughs> and that scene in this where he rides into a tree. And yeah. falls flat I know. on his sort of flat on his chest. The collision. Yeah. So I'm amazed he made it to four in the sequel. Surely they could have found a jockey and put him in a fat suit. <laughs> yeah. Like Willie Carson or somebody yeah. well, like they that. Could have yeah. got, I mean, I don't know, John Savident or someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> but he's. It, I I really enjoyed his performance on this. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I think he has probably what three lines of dialogue, but in the whole film, but he's just such a good little bumbling yeah. sidekick. Well, okay, Roy Kinnear is always great, but he's 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 very much. Is it fair to say he's one note? He, he his performance is never his performances never vary. They're always, he always plays the same sort of character, doesn't he? He always plays Veruca Salt's dad. Yeah, he always plays Roy Kinnear yeah. basically, which yeah. is fine. Which is fine. But yeah, I mean, as as we say, you know, he he was in this. He was in obviously he was in the Four Musketeers, and is it the Return of the Musketeers? Yes, and yeah. and and that was in the late eighties, and he fell off a horse, and had a heart attack, yeah. and died. He fractured his pelvis, and then and then died shortly afterwards. Yeah, and then Lester and, never and made Richard it. Lister never no. made another film there. Eh? Yeah, no. But he plays in this film. He plays uh, uh, Planchon. Um, yeah, and. The best scene with him really is is uprooting that tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he saves D'Artagnan's life with yeah. that tree. You recognise this place? Yeah. The last place on earth we are all alive together. Oh. Till we meet again, my friends. Hmm? Ah! That won't be long. When it came to casting, the producers insisted that. Raquel be cast and Simon Ward, apparently. Yes. Um, mm. And what do you think about the casting of Spike as Raquel Welch's husband? Well, it's comedy casting. Yeah, it's, it's a one-note joke. Yeah. But there is a there is a jarring shot of them actually having a cuddle in bed, which <laughs> presumably post-coital, yeah. which I didn't like. I'd, I'd rather that it got edited out. <laughs> But, um, you know, I mean, they play it for laughs, don't they? That she is this absolute drop-dead gorgeous bombshell. And she is very... She's stunning in this. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have dawdled the way Captain Peacock did in that sedan. <laughs> <laughs> I would have wasted no time. Um, <laughs> social mores were different back then. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, Spike was forever grateful. To Lester, <laughs> um. but I enjoyed. I actually enjoyed him in this because he, the 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 spikeness is pitched at a nice tone where it doesn't detract from the the material of the film too much. It doesn't. It didn't take me out of the film. It's 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 not scene stealing in a way that you would expect yeah. it to be. Spike just running around being Spike. Mm. Um, like I said, he, he's actually got things to do and things to say in this. The yeah. scenes with Cardinal Richelieu where he's sort of saying, oh, he calls me friend and things mm, like that. Yeah. If it wasn't Spike, it wouldn't be so comedic. You'd just think it was tragic. Yeah. So I think it's it's, it's good. I, I enjoyed yeah. him in this, yeah. I did love the bit where he said that you know, his wife lives in the palace, but she comes and visits him once a week and yeah tonight's the night and then he does this full body sort of tremble tremble (laughs) 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 I really it was so broad but I really enjoyed that ah Madame Bonachieu my wife Monsieur is she not beautiful enchanting thank you she is as as delicate as petals falling from a uh, of course, you know that my wife is a dressmaker to the Queen. Very nice person, the Queen. My wife has her every confidence. Yes, I'm I'm very proud of being her husband. 
And uh, she lives here? No. I live here. My beautiful Constance stays at the palace. I mean, where else? But she visits me once a week. Tonight, in fact. Madam must look forward to that eagerly. Mm. Yes. I love the bit with the flintlock <laughs> pistol. With his oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's Christopher Lee actually playing off him really well, yeah. too, in that scene. Yeah. It's, it's good also. I like the fact that because Richard Lester got his first big break courtesy of Peter Sellers in the 50s because Peter Sellers offered him a job directing a television show, okay, which soon after Spike got involved with. So I like the fact it's almost like, um, you know, Richard Lester was doing a uh, doing an old mate a favour by bringing in Spike. But yeah, good casting. Mm. And... Um, and Spike, at the time, was having some problems at home. Not problems, but he had a lot on his plate in terms of his personal life. And so he was quite yeah. glad to get away to, uh, I think it was Madrid that they filmed. And, yeah, they were in um, Spain, yes. yeah. All over Spain, weren't they? Yeah. 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 Um, but he, Spike, apparently he read up on the period, read the book, read all the books, all the Dumas books, studied the costumes, sets, the props, and... You know the bit at the end that that climactic ball scene, the the the, yeah. the grand ball. He was watching the filming of that, standing next to Dick Lester, and he had tears in his eyes apparently. And he said, to, he said to Dick, he said, "Can you imagine, Dick? It really was like this, wasn't it? This is how it actually looked in the past. We've brought back the past." So he was really uh, bound up in this whole project and really enjoyed his time on this film. And Charlton Heston apparently. So he says in his in his bio, in his autobiography um, was a big fan of Milligan. I'm not quite sure from what or from, from how that was, but he he said that Spike reminded him of a Shakespearean fool, and he really enjoyed working with Spike, which apparently made Spike feel greatly at ease because he was quite nervous about acting against such a great thespian as Charlton Heston, as he would be. Mm. I, you can see why Milligan was um, taken with the whole production though because like i even just me watching it i was stunned actually with the mm. sets and the as you say chris the, the costumes and the, the set design and it feels really authentic yeah and just the, the the little nooks and crannies that lester finds to kind of highlight well it's, it's even the basics they're almost like cutaway jokes but you imagine that the authenticity of things like they're just walking down the street and you know somebody's throwing their, their slop bucket out of the yeah, window. They yeah. don't make a huge thing of it, but yeah. it's just really to say that's what it was like. It looked all really, really grand. But it feels like you, you can sort of smell you can sort of smell the oh, what's yeah, going on yeah. and you can feel it and it's all sweaty and and it, yeah, they don't all look clean and mm. someone I think, someone's, I think that another thing that's someone's getting home. a tooth extraction on the street as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like that early game of tennis that they play. Oh, they're playing real tennis. Yeah. That's brilliant. And, and even the Duke of Buckingham, when he's walking around with that, um, oh, God, what do you call it? We've got the orange with the cloves in it. And he's, like, sniffing one of those. And mm. just, there's just little details everywhere that... Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that, that this film has been sort of congratulated for its its authenticity is the sword play. Yes. Where it's not just, right, I'll have a go, then you have yeah. a go and you chase me back. It is proper just people trying to... Yeah 
hack the shit out of each other. <laughs> I, I listened to to another in in preparation for this. I listened to another podcast, and mm. it was from somebody who was um, they were a trained fencer, and yeah. they said out of all the films they've seen, this is probably the one that does it right, does it really yeah. proper, where, especially with Oliver Reed, where yeah, well, he was just trying to hack people to pieces. Yeah, Christopher Lee had words with him, didn't he? Yes. So he said, "Don't forget." He said, "Who taught you how to wield a sword?" Well, you did. Yes, and don't you forget it. Yeah, yeah. I read in um, oh, what was the book? Well, I read in a biography called Hellraisers, mm. which is a biography of Oliver Reed, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, mm. and Peter O'Toole. That a lot of the the stunt fighters refused to fight with yeah. Oliver Reed because he didn't listen to any of the training or any of the directions. He, he just wanted to. His, his idea was just to kill people. He yeah. literally wanted to hit people with his sword, yeah. and he injured a lot of people by doing that. <laughs> Yeah, well, and you can tell. He threw yeah, yeah. Any any time he was obliged to do a fight in any film, he th- threw himself into it, didn't he? And I'm thinking <laughs> Women in Love as well. You know, he was quite happy. To <laughs> well, yeah, he certainly <laughs> threw himself into that. Yeah, threw himself into Alan Bates. <laughs> um. <laughs> the other thing I like about the fighting in this, and I know we've talked about this on on our show, mm-hmm. is. I like to see, especially things like sword fighting, where they get really knackered. Mm. And you know they have to keep going or they're going to die. It's not like if you see things like Lord of the Rings where people are super fit and they just fight for hours and hours and they look look perfect. With this one, they are knackered. And that doesn't happen. I think the only one of the ones I've seen like that is something like Rob Roy, where they're just barely able to stand up, but they know that if they give up, they're dead. And and that shows in this a lot, just because they look obviously really unfit. But There's the same... um... Sword fight choreographer, whose name escapes me right now, but he also did Rob Roy, mm. did Willow, did a whole lot of. I'll, I'll Google it. Shortly. Yeah, I, I, but, I don't um, remember that. Yeah, yeah. There's a real sense of danger and sort of urgency and stakes to every duel. Yes, and, and sort of almost like the panic is just barely suppressed in in both the combatants. Um. And it looks so authentic. Like, you know, Michael York, I actually came away from the rewatch of this with a better um, view of, of his performance as D'Artagnan because I actually quite admired the the comedic performance that he does in this. But he throws himself into the physicality of it as well. Well, he does that spin around the washing line. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and they, they just all go hell for leather. Well, the, the, yeah, the, there's never like the sense that it's a given that they're going to win any no. any confrontation and i'm thinking of you know the bit you know the bit when so d'artagnan bumps into athos at the beginning and athos says you need a lesson in manners and issues mm. him a challenge to a duel and then he and then he he knocks porthos off his horse i think and is yeah. issued with another <laughs> challenge and then i think he does the same to aramis so he basically has to he he, he turns up for this this duel with the three musketeers and then the cardinal's guards turn up, and, there's, and we have that sword fight. There's the point. Yeah. There's a bit where Athos, so Oliver Reed, is fighting with two swords, and he's he's like fighting one of the like a chuckle brother <laughs> dressed as one of them. <laughs> but he's he's got two swords. But he, yeah, there, there's like a seventy year old and one of the yeah. <laughs> one of the cardinal's guards. Though. Yeah, but you get the feeling that at any moment Athos could lose that, you know, yeah. lose that confrontation um and right at the beginning of the film you've got bloody um joss ackland briefly don't haven't you yes oh yeah that's that's daddy d'artagnan yeah. he's great i actually yeah that credit sequence 
really got me quite excited. Like I loved the the sort of unsheathing of the blade. It's not that the, sort of morphing yeah, slow mo. Yeah, that that got me going. Did it? That was cool. <laughs> yeah, not like that. <laughs> well, Michael, you're looking like particularly that. buff. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a real hey, delight from Joss Atlan. Joss yeah. Atlan gives me the horn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he give me a bit of diplomatic immunity. <laughs> He's showing off his lethal weapon. <laughs> but did you see who played D'Artagnan's mum? Oh, Ethel from EastEnders. It was, it was Ethel from EastEnders, Gretchen Franklin. <laughs> no sign of her little willy. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, the, it just it whips along. Like I, I just love how Joss Ackman has that chat with D'Artagnan, which is, don't ever submit to any insults. You know, make sure you get a lot of fighting in. And he takes them very literally. Yeah, I mean, D'Artagnan is basically scrappy dude at the start. Of the <laughs> basically, he'll have a fight with him. Yeah. It is. That's. But perfect. you looked at me funny. Yeah. You, yeah. He's stupidly earnest, isn't he? And he's he is. He's he's idealistic. He's naive. He's stubborn and courageous, of course. But to to me, the least impress, impressive actor in this film. Um, it's sort of the least naturally charismatic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Oliver Stone. Uh, Oliver Stone. Oliver Reed. Now that would be interesting casting. Oliver Stone's three Musketeers. <laughs> yeah, Oliver Stone's My three God, <laughs> you're going for the magic sword. Yeah, that would have been five hours. Um, long. I mean Oliver, Oliver Reed is just magnetic. I was actually watching this going, God, he would have been a good James Bond. Oh. Um, Richard. Ch- I've always had a soft spot for Richard Chamberlain. I love Richard Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> He kind of did a, a nice line in this sort of thing too, because he he did a Counter Monte Cristo. He did. He did a Man in the Iron Mask. He was also Jason Bourne. Yeah, and he was he was the original Jason Bourne. Oh, was yeah. he? Was he? Um, yeah. 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 So the Bourne films he were nominated, I think. The, there was Bourne Identity was like a, a TV it was a movie, oh. but I think it was based more on the the Ludlum book, yeah, rather than the absolute nonsense that yeah. became of the trilogy. Right. So yeah, he, he was in it. He was the miniseries king for a while, you know. Of, of, Thornbirds and things. Ralph Dubrickasol, yes. Thornbirds, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Frank Finlay, even, you know, like. Oh. Right. Why well, did they give him that dual role? I, I don't, don't understand. That was bizarre. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> he's the Eddie Murphy of his day. But because he basically looks exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they've given him a really good latex sort of appliance. But he turns up in a very brief scene as as it O'Reilly the O'Reilly. What is yeah, he? The jeweler. He, jeweler. Um, no, no need for it. I don't get it. Was did the original actor sort of not turn up or something? And Frank Finley just went, "You know, I'll do it." Yeah. And he was in there. I don't know. <laughs> and he sort of does a bit of a no speak of the English. Sort he of. does. Yeah, he's a bit what a mistake but... to make it. Yeah. <laughs> But why is he called O'Reilly then? <laughs> Irish Italian. Um... Well, we heard his Irish accent yeah. in the Wild Geese. We don't want that. They should have got. They should, if they, they should have got the guy who played O'Reilly in Faulty Towers. What's his name? Um, David. Um... David Kelly. David Kelly. Well, he couldn't do it. He's only got one arm. <laughs> he couldn't be a jeweler. <laughs> I so, thought he yeah. even washed dishes for years. 
for years and years and years, I was convinced that the actor David Kelly only had one arm because I'd seen him on Robin's Nest. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is one of the finest jokes of all time, though, is David Kelly playing the one-armed dishwasher. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you both um, note who voiced the king, Jean-Pierre Cassel, was, was dubbed? It's Richard Bryars. It was Richard Bryars. <laughs> well, there are two people who are dubbed in this, and yeah. they're dubbed by the, some of the most recognisable voiceovers of the 70s. You've got Richard Bryars and Michael Horden. You know, who, Michael Horden plays Monsieur, is it Tre- Monsieur Villiers? Yeah, Tre- who's Treville the, or something, yeah. Treville, yeah. Oh, the, oh, the man from the Musketeers. The Musketeers. He's like, oh, D'Artagnan. Yeah. It's, it's clearly Paddington Bear. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and of course, at the time, around this time, Bryars and Horden were making uh, Jeeves and Worcester for the radio. They were! Ah. Mm. It is my intention to retire to the depths of the country. In some old world sequestered nook, I shall find a cottage and there resume my studies. A cottage, sir? A cottage, Jeeves. If possible, honeysuckle covered. Uh, In that case, sir, I fear I must give my notice. Jeeves, I hear you correctly. Yes. You actually contemplate leaving my entourage? Only with the greatest reluctance, sir. But if it is your intention to play that instrument within the narrow confines of a country cottage... Uh, you say that instrument, Jeeves, and you say it in an unpleasant, soupy voice. I am hard put to explain it to him who guards France while I sleep, who labours unceasingly while I amuse myself. Your Majesty refers to God? I refer to Cardinal Richelieu, which is not quite the same thing. Is the reason they did the voiceovers because the actors were were too French? And they didn't want other people who were pretending to be French to not look so good? I don't know, but it was jarring for me knowing Mm. that Jean-Pierre Cassel is this presumably quite virile Frenchman. (laughs) <laughs> Vincent Kessel's father, yeah. and, and you got Tom Good turning up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Bryce. and then there's um, very yeah. Well, yeah, but I've seen Jean. Timid. I've seen Jean Pierre Cassel in um, Murder on the Orange Express, and as far as I can remember, his he he spoke English perfectly well. But is he in the um, Albert Finney one? Yes, Sydney Lumet one. The okay. Sydney Lumet oh, one. Okay. Yeah, he plays the. Oh, yeah, I, I think he's like the train the conductor on the train. Okay. Um, Frank, Frank, Frank Finlay, I always think of him immediately as the witch smeller persuivant. Yes. Witch smeller persuivant. Old big nose is back. Yeah. <laughs> He's so <laughs> scary in that one, isn't he? Isn't he? Carrots! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably the best episode in that first. I, I like that one. I, I do yeah. like the Queen of Spain's beard. Oh, yes. I love yeah, that. Yeah. With, yeah. With Jim Broadbent plays the uh, interpreter called Don Speak English. Again, please. <laughs> Again, please. <laughs> Edmund, my love. <laughs> do you know the, the, the only thing about that that still confuses me? And it's, it's a bit creepy. You know when... Sorry, listeners. We're completely going off track here. But in that episode, <clears throat> so you've got Miriam Margulies as the, as the Spanish Infanta. Yes. Who's desperate to get into Edmund's trousers, basically, isn't she? And she's talking to Edmund's mother, and she's obviously got Jim Broadbent, the translator, translating for her. 
and she's asking Edmund's mother what he's like in bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I what? think that's the joke, isn't it? <laughs> she quite rightly says he's like a little rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> Is that when um, Edmund's all bruised and, and battered? Oh, Baldrick's bruised. Baldrick. Oh, Baldrick's bruised, yeah. After they have, she, she can't yeah. be a virgin, so Baldrick has to go and seduce her. <laughs> and he's all black and blue yeah. afterwards. Uh, yeah. Oh, should we just talk about that instead? <laughs> uh, very underrated series. It doesn't get a lot of talking about. I, I always, I, it's my second favourite Blackadder series. Now, back to Oliver Reed. So Athos, yeah. the character of Athos, is he meant to be? Because I've not read the book, but is mm. he meant to be alcoholic? That's I haven't read the book either, but that's certainly the the characterization that they go with in a whole lot of adaptations. Is that because of Oliver Reed? I don't know, but he's one excerpt I read was that he was he's stern, and while his um. While his colleagues have seen him smile a lot, they've never seen him laugh. Is sort of a line that okay. Oh, okay. that they say. So I think he's sort of the the, the brooding, angsty one, mm. which you know you find out later that he has this romantic history with Milady de Winter, and there's an actual bastard. He found out that she was a criminal, and just spurned her, and then of course ends up. Um, Presiding over her uh, execution. Mm. Mm. Okay, it's not good, is it? <laughs> it's just a very, it's very. Mm. It'd be easy, to, very easy to sympathise with her <laughs> in that situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know in because he's um, a he's a nobleman. He's the, he's a he's a count. He's the Comte de la Frere or something. Yeah, I know. In um, in as we mentioned, Dog Tanyon and the Three Musket Hounds, the the Athos there does yeah. drink beer. Oh, okay. so, so maybe it does follow on. He drinks a beer and swears he's faithful to the king. Yeah. As they say in the lyrics. Yeah. Um, so maybe it is yeah. a, a, a Dumas thing, or maybe they've just yeah. copied off all of the Reed. Yeah. This, this film did, you know, set some precedence because Christopher Lee's interpretation of Rochefort with the uh, eye patch, which I think was a Christopher Lee thing where his backstory was a musketeer took Rochefort's eye and that's why he has this animosity towards the musketeers yeah, okay yeah but every uh iteration of rochefort after that has had an eye patch even though that's not mentioned in dumas oh, okay right yeah. a bit like the dare stalker with sherlock holmes that was never mentioned yeah. in the actual um, stories and i think it was adopted by an early actor i don't know william gillette or someone like that on you know okay. on stage and it hmm. it, it became the man can get accepted as as Part of the Sherlock Holmes costume, I suppose. A bit like how um, the makers of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, thought Nazir was a canonical yeah. <laughs> character. And not from Robin of Sherwood. Yeah. Yeah. Prince of Thieves, I haven't seen it for years and years and years. Am I right in thinking that they, they land in Dover? They and... land at Seven Sisters, um, which is meant to look like Dover. It's quite topical, of course. Indeed, yeah. Um, and they, they walk to Nottingham. Yeah. <laughs> to that tree that's no longer the, there, which is on Hadrian's Wall. Sycamore Gap. Um, by, by nightfall. And as, as, as we've yeah. already covered Prince of Thieves, and I don't really have an issue with that. I'm fine. No, me either. Yeah. Um, and what about, I mean, we, we mentioned the script, George MacDonald Fraser, 
it's a brilliant script for this. And the dialogue was especially picked out for praise because it was both... And again, this is kind of bringing in, weaving in the, the Flashman um, influence. It was authentic. The dialogue was authentic for the period while also being uh, sufficiently contemporary enough. Yeah. For modern ears and a, a bit of bawdiness. Um And yeah, also... There's a, there's a lot of... Bit of a shaggy, shagadelic sort of um, spirit to this. <laughs> yeah. 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 And Lester wanted to highlight the underclass, you know, the servants, the peasantry, not just make it a sumptuous film with the focus on the wealthy and then the entitled. So it's, it's like we said before, you know, you see people throwing um, <laughs> shit out the window and yeah. um, amateur dentistry and people sleeping rough. And yeah, D'Artagnan himself is very much, you know, you sympathise with him because he's coming from kind of nothing, really. And I thought there's, there's this one moment towards the end where he confesses to the Duke of Buckingham, and I'm sure it's very common at the time, but he says, oh, I'm afraid I can't read, which mm. you sort of think, they wouldn't have done that in a in an American version. You know, they just, they wouldn't have yeah. had that little... He'd have been poor, but educated. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But taught himself to read with, you know, his father's Bible or something, you know. <laughs> but but I just thought that was like even a little insight into just yeah, this guy's effectively a bit of a peasant who knows how to wield a sword. And and also the musketeers are not held up as being because they are the they are technic, they are the king's men, aren't they? But but they're also mercenaries to a degree. They're they're guns for hire, I suppose. Um, I've never really understood. They're, because every version of the musketeers that you watch, they just seem to do what the fuck they want. Mm. So yeah, I just I don't really know. Yeah, they, they, I'd imagine that their oath is allegiance to the yeah. king, but but everything they do in this isn't in yeah. allegiance to the king. It's the polar opposite. They're yeah. they're assisting with the queen's infidelity. Yeah. And I, I, I for me, I was a yeah. little confused with that as well. Nothing of this. The king is portrayed in this as just a. An idiot. Yeah. And they help him in no way at all. Well, Joss Ackland does say to D'Artagnan, you're a king's man and a queen's man too. Uh-huh. Also, it's it's obviously, I know it was it was filmed in one and it's split into two films. Um, it's called The Three Musketeers, but it's very much about D'Artagnan, this first yeah. film. And you don't see, you don't, Faye Dunway as Milady de Winter, is that her name? Mm. she yeah. doesn't have a huge amount to do in this film so I'm assuming she does have a lot more in the Four Musketeers Yeah, as I guess the, a lot more to, the Cardinal she has a lot more to do in the in the next one well the subtitle is is it Milady's Revenge Milady's Revenge yeah because yeah. the, the subtitle of this one is The Queen's Diamonds and yeah Milady's Revenge for the next one yeah. but they had to um, ensure that they kept Athos and Milady separated in this first film because okay. if they saw laid eyes on each other, then they've got this shared history. Yeah, yeah. But they do sort of cross paths right at the end of it. Yeah, but, but she's sort of exchanging glances with D'Artagnan yeah, more than but, anything else. Yeah, not not with Athos. Mm. Yeah. And Chris, um, were you taken out of this film by the unexpected appearance of Rodney Bewes? I was <laughs> very much so <laughs> playing a spy. <laughs> In another cracking scene, another brilliant bit of writing, which I thought was really good because he's talking in flashback 
and relaying what they were saying, but doing it in such a dry Rodney Buse kind of way. It was great. It was just another one in it that was really nice to see from mm. that sort of 70s era, very much like Frank Thornton. Yeah. Is that the guys reading the yeah. transcript yeah. and then they... Yeah, Rodney Buse, and then they have lads, yeah. Geraldine Chaplin and Raquel Welsh mm. actually mouthing his dialogue. Yeah, it's yeah. really well done. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. The following conversation took place in the bedchamber of Madame Bonacieux at the palace. The Queen said, I am lost, I am lost. Madame Bonacieux said, A Majesty. Constance, I am lost. Majesty. What can I do, Constance? We can get the studs back. Lord Buckingham, in 14 days from London, I am lost. Majesty, in 14 days, a messenger can reach London and return to Paris with the studs. And a messenger who? I can trust no one. That devil has informers everywhere. That evil, filthy, revolting, wretched man, evil, filthy, revolting, evil man, calls himself a man of the church. <clears throat> According to this. Again, the likely lads, or whatever happened to the likely lads, I don't think, certainly when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, that was, I don't think that was repeated or shown on TV in New Zealand. I, I really came to it when I came to the UK, so... I don't think Rodney Bewes... I might be wrong, but I don't think Rodney Bewes is a household household name. There's, there's James Bolam, though, as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was very familiar with James Bolam as a kid from something. Yeah, um, only when I laugh. Only when I laugh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah all right. Yeah. And um, when the boat comes in. Okay. <laughs> Can you sing the Remember theme? only for its theme music. Can you sing the theme music, Chris? <laughs> I'm not oh. <laughs> I'm not singing. <laughs> Dance for your daddy, my little lamb. <laughs> do the fishy on a dishy. <laughs> God. It's a cracker. But yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I, I, if you didn't see, especially whatever happened to the Like Lads, which I think is one of those very rare examples of <clears throat> when they revive a series, it's much better than the original. Yeah. Um, it's it's coming on the film. It's yeah, yeah. absolutely fabulous. It's so yeah. good. And if you can dig it out, it's, it's well worth it. Okay. It's so brilliant. Again, that's another one that had a spin-off film where they went on a caravanning holiday. <laughs> Which was okay. I quite like that one, yeah. Yeah. The sad thing is that I gather Bolam and Buse didn't get on in real life particularly well. Oh. Um, and I think Bolam pretty much cut cut ties with Buse completely because Rodney Buse was interviewed at one point and said something... He, not, nothing bad, but something indis- what Bolam dis- d- d- uh, considered indiscreet about Bolam's wife in an interview. Ooh. And um, nothing bad. I can't remember what it was, but anyway. Keep my wife's name oh, yeah. out of <laughs> your fucking mouth. <laughs> he probably just said, you know, you know, I've slept with James Bolam's wife, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, Bolam just, just cut him dead after that. And um, Bolam was probably next to him in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> should have seen his face blimey I have to say my three and a half year old son is a bit of a James Bolam fan because James Bolam plays grandpa in my pocket pocket. yeah (laughs) oh I think I've seen that my daughter I think may have watched that when she was little um you know the ball at the end of this film the, the climax of the film is this grand ball because the cardinal is trying to set in train the downfall of the queen 
isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, by exposing her, yeah, Austria, exposing her relationship with the Duke of Buckingham, and yeah. some diamonds. And anyway, there's this grand ball. Did you see the guy who looked like Mick Fleetwood dressed as a mountain goat? <laughs> <laughs> Now, there's a sentence I wasn't expecting to hear. <laughs> and you got um, Planchard, you got Roy Kinnear dressed as a polar bear. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's quite slimming, actually, that polar bear's head. I think he looks very good, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. You've got dwarves who are, again, they're having little conversations of their own, these serving little people. And. It's really funny. They're talking about, oh, I can't be here. She's got different shoes. Her feet are too small or something. like. They're on yeah. these little chats together. And that must be scripted, but I just think yeah. it's so nice. And that, that scene where um, D'Artagnan finds, you know, on his, on his their daring mission to get to Buckingham so they can get the necklace off him. Hmm. When he finds Buckingham in that field, it just looks... Amazing the way that Lester's shot it. I mean, it's, it's just looked like a row of tents or yes, something. Yeah, but it just totally evokes this kind of yeah. He, he makes it look like a, a huge budgeted epic, isn't that? Yeah, are, are absolutely. Aren't they slaughtering absolutely. deer yeah. at this? Well, yeah, they are. Yeah, so apparently there were um, some criticisms of the scenes of animal cruelty in this because there's also that scene where. The dogs have a right old, the chest, the chest, chest, chest dogs, the chest dogs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's first <laughs> draft. You need to get the blokes from Abba. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just um, got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's also like a like a hawking scene, and I don't mean mm. you know a, a scientist with a funny voice. Um, there's a scene with some hawkers, and some some birds are clearly slaughtered by the hawks as well. So yeah. you're right. There, there are a couple of scenes like that that made me feel yeah. a little bit. Ooh. That would have been inspired casting. <laughs> oh, for one. Do you, do you want to hear my Stephen Hawking story? Yeah. Please oh do. yes, yes. So my wife, years ago, used to work in customer services for a large well-known um, department store. and um, Yes, I know the one. And, uh, you know, the the kind of people that would typically phone up and complain were people living in the shires, you know, middle-class... Hobbits. ...types. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, one day, my wife took this call from this woman and she said, um, I'm a personal assistant to Professor Stephen Hawking. And... Um, the uh, lounge suite that we had that he had delivered is you know there's a tear or something you know and um, we, we want something you know we want some sort of uh, compensation blah 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 that sort of thing right so my wife's taken down to the details and, and at one point she can hear in the background the unmistakable sound of Stephen Hawking saying do not take any crap from them <laughs> The unmistakable sound. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the unmistakable sound of Stephen Hawking. Lucky he didn't turn up. She would have been like, just leave it, Stephen. They're not worth it. They're not worth it, yeah. 
Did he get any compensation? He's dead now, no. we can say. I don't know. <laughs> okay. What does he need a couch for? <laughs> what? Exactly. <laughs> Scraped it. That's terrible. <laughs> Sorry, but <laughs> anyway, back to the film. Um, oh yeah, the, the musketeers. Yeah, the, right, the yeah. musketeers. You know the bit. So right at the end, when you've got, oh, I don't particularly. I don't know how you feel. The whole climax of the film with the with D'Artagnan and the the fight between um, Raquel and. Faye Dunaway and all that. I found that a bit, it yeah. went on a bit too long. And I don't understand how the, yeah, it did. How did the musketeers know to get there to help D'Artagnan? I, I, I didn't get that. I didn't understand. There's a, well, they, there's a little bit of that throughout the whole film. Well, they sort of like spontaneously kind of coalesce around each other for <laughs> really vague reasons. But they, they heard his voice, right? When he, um, when he nicked their horse. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, because he thought they were dead, so when he was on his way back to the the palace, yeah, because they were they they were yeah. with him for a mission, and yeah. they'd obviously heard him and knew he'd returned, so they thought, oh well, the mission's still on, yeah, let's right. go and join him. But rather than ride horses, they're just carried in those little chariots, yeah, yeah which <laughs> is quite sedan chair yeah. things, um, yeah. <laughs> and that horse that D'Artagnan stole, there's a bit where he he has to kick a hole through a wall. Yeah. Was that wall made out of cake? Because it just seemed to... <laughs> <laughs> it's like that that viral trend. Is it cake? Is it cake, is it cake or is it a wall? It's a new Is it wall? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it would have been easier if he just stood on the horse's back and climbed over. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. exactly a high wall. Yeah. I looked quite convinced. I was convinced. Because you actually see the horse doing his little kicky thing, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I was quite impressed with that. And because it's a Richard Lester well, I, film as well, there's the bit where, I think it's D'Artagnan, he, he 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 tries to pull a carpet from under the feet of some people, and you think that they're going to fall over, but all he does is rip the carpet. <laughs> yeah. Which, which There's little deflating moments like that yeah. throughout the film. Like there's that bit where he tries to... Um, extinguish the candle with his sword and he just sort of misses it and then he has to he goes, clumsily take yeah. his glove off and, <laughs> and also is I quite like all that is Constance is Raquel Welsh the, that character of Constance that she plays I don't think in the book she's meant to be clumsy but she's portrayed as very clumsy in this isn't she yeah she's supposed to be an intelligent loyal you know aide to the queen um, which they obviously keep the loyalty, but... I mean, I quite like that, because in a lot of films, particularly if you're talking about people like Richard Curtis or whatever, beautiful women are always these perfect, yeah. um, infallible, <laughs> unattainable. So to make it ridiculously clumsy, yeah. I think it's a really, really nice yeah. touch. Yeah. And she's attainable. Yeah, very. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, she's... I mean, there's a lot of unseemly coercion from D'Artagnan. Yeah, he's very persuasive, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, he's <laughs> come and have a cuddle. He's yeah. desperate as buggery to give her a bath, isn't he? Or wash her or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has washed a horse before, <laughs> and and you start at the top. He knows all the lines. Yeah. <laughs> Work done. Yeah. You cannot go to the queen with dirty legs. 
No. Are you strong enough to wash them? No. Oh, my poor husband. Hmm? Without him, I feel so helpless. I've never washed the legs of a woman. I have done a horse. With a horse, you start at the top. I cannot go dirty to the queen. Do you think I will be safe here? Oh, oh yes, Constance. Yes. That's the thing. D'Artagnan is a pain in the ass, really. And she asks, I mean, she goes off. She goes off for an assignate, a secret assignation, or, or he doesn't know where she's off to. And she makes she she makes D'Artagnan promise promise not to follow her. So he does. Um, yeah, immediately. And, and she meets Simon Ward, the Duke of Buckingham, which leads to that fight scene in the laundry. Roy Kinnear is joining in, <clears throat> giving people soft taps on the head with planks of wood. Yeah, which is knocking <laughs> yeah. them out. But you've got um, Oliver Reed. Red face, sweating like hell, yeah. and just look looking like he wants to kill people. You he's know? sweating in every scene in this. Yeah, he just looks like he's permanently in that, permanently hungover. Or well, it's no, it's yeah, it's interesting. He's not playing tennis, is he? It's Porthos and Aramis. He's just what he's. Yeah. He looks too sweaty. He's sitting there sweating, <laughs> yeah. watching them, sitting and looking angry. <laughs> yeah. But it's the fact also that he doesn't just fight with swords. He'll fight with like a coat, yeah. and things like that. He just uses whatever's around him. Yeah. Just with the intent of not knocking somebody out, as you said, like Roy Kinnear, just it's, killing them. It's like 17th century born supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> That's Richard Chamberlain. <laughs> but yeah, it's another one of those sort of desperate, who the fuck knows what's going to happen fight scenes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I will say, we talked about Simon Ward. It's just a little bit of trivia. Do you know who Simon Ward's son-in-law is? No. It's the comedian Michael McIntyre. Oh God! Oh God! Yeah. There you oh, go. Right. Um, I found that out in my doing my homework. Well, you know who Jeez, Michael McIntyre's father was. Mr. McIntyre. Mr. McIntyre. No, I'm trying to think of someone else called uh, McIntyre. Ray Ray Cameron. I don't know why he's got a different surname. Ray Cameron. Oh. Ray Cameron, famous for uh, co-writer for Kenny Everett on the Kenny Everett television show. Oh, with Barry Cryer. Okay. Hmm. Oh, wow, I didn't know that one. Yeah, well, Kenny Everett video show. You know, there was the two, wasn't there? There yeah. was the Thames one. And oh, the absolutely. BBC. I remember the video show, yeah. Yeah. I bet Michael McIntyre really gets on Simon Ward's tits. <laughs> well, not anymore. <laughs> oh, is he, is he died? Did. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, he probably but, did. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine their dinners? <laughs> oh, I, I'm just God. glad Simon Ward didn't live, live long enough to see The Wheel on TV. He would be... I don't mean it, but he would be turning in his grave. <laughs> I watched The Wheel for the first and only time recently because my wife was watching it. Um, and it, it, you do have to... It's like the celebrities that they get on, part of the agreement must be you have to behave like a tit. So, <laughs> you have to know how to dance like an idiot in a chair. That, yeah. That's it. <laughs> but I am, I, I, I'm not normally... I mean, I, sometimes I'm quite scathing, but... Just because I don't find certain things funny, it doesn't mean they're not funny. I and mean, everyone always goes on about things like Mrs. Brown's voice. I personally don't find it funny, but clearly a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. and they're idiots. Um, well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but with with Michael McIntyre's The Wheel, it is absolute shite. 
<laughs> I don't understand it at all. Let, let, let's let's stop talking about Michael McIntyre. It's distressing me. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. So, um, <laughs> this is a podcast might, yeah. about comedy. Might, yeah, sorry. Might have to edit that out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, you hate mail. This is next but, guest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, what I'll say is, I really enjoyed this. I, I liked it a lot more than I expected to. Mm. Um, I was really impressed with it. Just. Yeah, I thought it was so entertaining. I'm really looking forward to watching the next one. Yeah. So was I it still was me, it still any good, Rob? Yes, it certainly was. Still good. Good. Nice one. Yeah. Now, now for me, I, I gave the film the same treatment that I I did or I do for for our own podcast, which is I'll watch it through first time just to get a feel of it, and then the second time I'll sit and I'll make notes and I'll write down and I'll, I'll sort of take a little bit more in. And the first time I didn't enjoy it at all. And I think that's more my fault than the films, because like I said before, I'd completely forgotten mm. that there was all of this slapstick and comedy and lightheartedness. And I was expecting a bit more of a, a serious, albeit bawdy kind of swashbuckler. Chris had just watched an episode of The Wheel. Yeah. So it, was, <laughs> yeah. it was on a bad Curse day. you and all your family, <laughs> I said to the TV. Um, and so the first time I thought, oh God, I, I really didn't get this. And I think it's, I, I, I sort of hung a lot of that on Richard Lester. I mean, the the, the sections, and if we compare it to another thing he did with, with the Sarkins, which was, of course, the, the scenes of Superman 2, and you can tell the Richard Lester scenes of that. To, to use a phrase of yours, Rob, they stick out like dog's balls. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> where there's, there's some serious stuff, and then someone will, someone's wig will blow off in Superman 2, or they'll get an ice cream in the face. And this felt very like, much like that. But the second time I watched it, I enjoyed it considerably more. I accepted the film for what it was. And like like we said, I was really, really blown away by the production design, by the sword play, um, and just by the, the sheer stupidity of quite a lot of it, I thought was great fun yeah. too. So, yeah. yes, I would say still good as well. Mm, excellent. Very good, very good. So, no, what about you? You have to, you have to say. Um, What's your verdict? Yeah, I mean, I, I've not seen it for, I don't know, 35, 40 years maybe. Um and it, yeah, I was expecting it to be baggy. I don't know why, long and baggy, um, and it wasn't. It was very, very tight. And uh, Spike was better than I expected Spike to be. I mean, Spike's good yeah. in most things, but like you say, he's usually just playing Spike, isn't he? Um, at least in this, he's got stuff to do. Uh, and I, I enjoyed all the performances with. The possible exception of Michael York, who I, I struggle with in anything, really. I don't think I've seen any anything with Michael York in that I've particularly rated him oh, in. He was, he was fantastic as Basil Exposition. <laughs> well, see, I don't even like that. Uh, <laughs> very soon we'll be able to tell you how he's doing in Logan's Run, because that's our next episode. That's our next one, yeah. yeah. Oh my God, it's a York. It's a Yorkathon a for York-a-thon, us. Yorkathon, yeah, Absolutely. Oh, York fist. Double York. Double yeah. York. <laughs> now, I need to ask um, Tyler, talking about Spike's performance in this, was there a period where he was more interested in, in sort of taking on less kind of madcap Spike Milligan roles and just trying to do something a bit more sort of serious? Is there any part of his career where he was doing that? Yeah. The reason I ask that is, um, I know probably about a year prior to this, he was originally cast in the, the Amicus film Asylum. Oh, was he? Which yeah, oh, you know the, the role that eventually was taken on by Jeffrey Baldon. Oh, oh my god, you can totally see yeah. 
Milligan in that role. But it, I mean, without giving away too much, it would have given things away. I think. Yeah. Um, but was there any sort of period where he was looking to sort of branch out a bit? Yeah. Well, he he actually got a end of the fifties. So as the Goon Show was coming to an end, he signed a contract with MGM to make okay. to make a number of films. Well, he made he made two films I can think of where they were they were like comedies, but he was he was trying to act fairly straight. You know what I mean? He wasn't doing mm-hmm. the the Milligan. You know, like Milligan will in in any film appearance you see him in generally, he will be doing that thing where he's his eyebrows are up and down and he's he's clenching and unclenching looking, his fists. Looking vacantly off camera. Yeah. yeah and, 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 and yeah, absolutely. The, the, there's a film called Postman's Knock in which he plays a character, a postman who, yeah, it's a fairly <laughs> straight performance. It's a comedy, but it's a, it's a straight performance. And I think he did want, I think, to his career to go in the same direction that Peter Sellers did around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not the actor that Peter Sellers was. So... No, no, I think that's fair. Uh, and he lacked, he lacked. I think he lacked the discipline that. Well, he certainly lacked the discipline that Sellers had in terms of the acting side of things. And and Sellers also, he had the looks to really be a leading man. Mm. And the charm. And the charm, yeah. Whereas Spike, yeah. Well, that, that you say that, but, but always... I mean, Sellers in the fifties was a quite, quite hefty. Um, a porker. <laughs> <laughs> If you look at photos of Spike and Peter in the early 50s, Spike is a very handsome man. Very handsome man. You know, before he started to go grey and, you know, the Spike that we know, if you like. And Sellers around the early 50s was quite chubby and he had this weird sort of, <laughs> sort of Sid James type hair. You know, that sort of weird. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. he did, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think I think is curly hair. It's Is it curly hair that you, is sort of brill creamed or something and it's got that weird sort of wavy effect it, it, yeah it's, it's, i mean i know you mentioned douglas hurd before it is like a young douglas hurd that sort of mr whippy kind of <laughs> that's hair, it yeah 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 it's quite mulligan sort of had a bit of a james cromwell look sort of didn't he yeah come to bed conscience my small chicken and i'll uh... <laughs> oh, i'll do anything you ask if you promise to take the letter oh what do i know about letters oh my beautiful conscience i've been away from you so many days and so many nights no i'm serious you think i'm not hey must go to London now. Oh, it must, because you say so. Well, I don't wish to be trusted, me, and I'll tell you for why. Because that so very suspicious letter smacks of intrigue. Oh, Constance, Constance. Yes, intrigue. And very much the intrigues of your queen have done for you. Assaulted, terrified, and me dragged to the Bastille. The Bastille. Well, I tell you, I don't wish to be sent to the Bastille, me, because it's got very deep dungeons and terrible instruments of torture operated by very unsympathetic men. And they snip very important parts off people. Sacrifice. But no, I mean, look, a great film, uh, very enjoyable, and I am really looking forward to watching The Four Musketeers with you guys, hopefully next year. Yeah. Yes. Great. Yeah, we'll get you on next year, most definitely. Um, yeah. So we've, we, we haven't really talked about it, but... Um, the premise of Still Any Good is that you, sometimes with guests, you go back and revisit films that you enjoyed when you were younger and, and to see whether they hold up. Yeah. That's the, the premise, isn't it? Absolutely. That is it, yeah. yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be... Some people think, oh, it's just going to be kids' films, but 
you know, when, when we were young, we didn't just watch kids' films. We watched all manner of things, whatever was on TV, and it's, it's whatever stuck with us, whatever we, we vaguely remember enjoying and we haven't seen for, what's our rule, 15, uh, 15 years? 15 years is our rule. 15 years. We'll we, go we've back been and have there a look. every now and again. But, yep. Yeah. Um, and, and as you can imagine, some, some of them turn out to be an absolute joy and some turn out to be an absolute disaster. Yeah. yeah. And we talk... This episode has sort of been a, a bit of a meandering chat. That's basically what we offer. Yeah. Sometimes with a guest, sometimes without. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what have you got coming up on Still Any Good? You've said Logan's Run. You've got any other? You've got a Christmas special planned or anything like that? Yes, we are um, going to be looking at Eyes Wide Shut. Oh. Which I, I've never seen, but Robert Shaw's me is a Christmas film. It, it is set during Christmas, and Christmas is referenced. Throughout the film. Right, I've got yeah, the Kubrick yeah. box set. And I've watched them all apart from that because I just got the impression it's not very good at all. But is it? Is it? Well, you don't want to show your hand here, Rob, but I suppose it must. there must be well, some... Well, I haven't done the rewatch right. yet. Um, but I I enjoyed it, yeah. I've seen it, seen it a few times. Not, not for at least 15 years, I'd say. But yeah, I'd say challenging film i think i can i can see why some people would have an allergic reaction to it because it's an unusual film okay because i've seen very very few kubrick films i know we've talked about mm. this as well is i i haven't seen clockwork orange or 2001 oh god or Full oh. metal jacket oh. have you seen I barry london pardon have you seen barry london no oh fuck i know i'm i'm a, I'm a film person and I, i've absolutely no idea why it's, your blind spot. I, I, it's my blind spot. i've seen yeah. the shining i've seen spartacus yeah. i've seen gardens of stone that's probably about oh piles of glory sorry not yeah, yeah. Piles of stone that's all of a stone um and that's probably about it so i'm gonna find this very interesting i've just realized yeah. we, we've got a tom cruise double bill because we've got a guest going on who's doing legend of course. Yeah, so we've got a we've got a cruiserthon yeah. yeah. as well as a Yorkathon. Yeah, as well as a Yorkathon. <laughs> double York, double cruise. Yeah. As far as Stanley Good goes, we we do have um, a, a, other things happening in the, very very soon. I think within the next week or so, or next two weeks, um, Rob's partner's having a baby, so we, we'll have a podcast yeah. baby. Absolutely. Well, I, that's why I wanted to squeeze you guys in before the big day because obviously you will have your hands you. full. Uh, well, last time my partner had a baby, I. I recorded an episode that evening. You did, yeah. <laughs> we recorded Tango and Cash the day you became a father. <laughs> Not because I'm a terrible partner and father, it was because it was level four lockdown in New Zealand and I actually wasn't allowed in the hospital. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Nothing so better to do. We talked about an appalling <laughs> action body comedy. Um, you, you mentioned Barry Lyndon. I think Barry Lyndon would be a nice companion piece for this film, actually, in some ways. It, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, I agree. It, the, the, the Barry Lyndon is is very long, but it's similar sort of period, I yeah. guess. And there is there is some humour running. I mean, you've got Leonard Rossiter in it, for God's sake, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think you, at some point, Chris, you must watch Barry Lyndon. It's like a painting on film. It is. is I, 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 I know I'd enjoy them. I know I'd appreciate them. But I, I think, especially with Kubrick, I always find that there'd, there'd be a lot of effort involved. Mm. And sometimes I just think I don't have the energy for that anymore. Uh, yeah. Well, how would you know? You haven't fucking watched it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will soon because I'm going to watch Eyes Wife. Yeah. No, but just, you're right. If you want to watch something unchallenging, watch Carry On Behind. But sometimes, sometimes you do want. Sometimes. <laughs> 
I think Harry Behind's a real challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you want to be challenged. I don't know about you. I want to be challenged sometimes when it comes to. Oh, films. yeah, definitely. Mm. But sometimes I'm just tired. I know. It happens a lot. And that's my age. That's the fact I've got children. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you do just want to sit down and watch Carry On Behind, <laughs> there, don't you? I'm a bit like that with horror these days. I used to quite like a really good, bleak, nasty horror film. And every now and then I try and get myself set up to watch one, I go, oh, yeah. I think I'll just go for something a bit more well, upbeat. Do you know what I watched <laughs> for the first time the other night? Um, I'd always been put off watching it because Mark Kermode goes on about it all the bloody time. Um, the, Exorcist. the Exorcist. Yeah. And it it wasn't bad. Oh, I love oh, it. That, I love yeah, the it's Exorcist. really good. The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, I think what I think what sours the Exorcist for a lot of people is they've seen the French and Saunders sketch before seeing the actual film, and that's all you can think of. Right. Well, I, I haven't seen that sketch, but um, oh, but I've sure seen good, I've seen yeah. many parodies of the yeah. Exorcist, and what I couldn't get over was the fact that um, Max von Sydow, who's who is the Exorcist. Yeah. He's 44 years old, the actor, but he's made up to look about twice that age. You know, the age of young Mr. Grace from I.E. being served. You know, <laughs> <totally wrong. laughs> But anyway, anyway, listen, chaps, I have, I have yep. kept you long enough. And uh, thank you so much for coming Thanks back. Thanks for having here. us on, Tyler. And I will uh, look forward to joining you at some point. And, and Robert, you know, uh, all the best with the... Uh, the the incoming yeah. uh, and, uh, and Chris... the arrival of baby d'artagnan <laughs> and chris have you got anything um coming up in your private life not you at all no, not, nothing as special as rob's got coming up no no just just, just getting older and, and enjoying these chats i've absolutely loved it tonight it's been brilliant thank okay. you brilliant all right chaps well uh thank you again and uh we'll talk again soon